Our partner today is Food Forest Card Game. The deck of Food Forest cards puts you in the center of a web of relationships connecting plants, insects, animals, and people. With these cards, you will play fun, challenging games based on these relationships, as you match the inputs of one card to the outputs of another. For example, you can take a card that produces nitrogen and connect it to a nitrogen consumer, a card that needs a trellis to another that can act as one. By matching these relationships, players discover how to use the complex web of nature to their advantage, both in the game and in the garden. More than just a matching game, the team at Food Forest Card Game provide you with many different activities you can play with a single deck of cards. Some of these include Solitaire, where you build a food forest by mixing and matching inputs and outputs throughout the various zones of permaculture. Chicken, a poker-style game where you try to build the best hand and score the most points. And my favorite, Homesteader, where you work to build the most productive landscape possible while also managing the land, pests, and natural disasters. In addition to everything you can learn by playing, Food Forest cards are also responsibly sourced. Every deck sold goes towards planting multiple trees. They not only offset their impact, but honestly improve the environment. Learn more about the many games you can play and order your deck of cards today at foodforestcardgame.com. Sponsors like the Food Forest Card Game help the show grow by allowing me to visit festivals like Mother Earth News Fair or record in-person interviews like the one you'll hear next week with Avery Ellis. But the show continues to exist because of listeners like you. If you'd like to be a recurring supporter of the show, consider becoming a listener member at Patreon, where you can receive unique thank yous, like the weekly update posted every Friday, early access to higher quality, ad-free episodes, the opportunity to enter exclusive giveaways for books, tickets to events, and other permaculture resources, and so much more. Find out more at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Do you prefer to give on your own schedule? Consider donating a dollar an episode. It would really help. You can donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. We will not fight to save what we do not love. My guest today is Emma Huvos who joins me to talk about her role as an educator who blends together her time as a classroom teacher with the forest and outdoor school models of Europe to create a hands-on, experiential, student-driven, early childhood learning experience that is Riverside Nature School. That opening quote from the paleontologist and science writer Stephen Jay Gould is a running thread throughout this conversation as we look at how early exposure to the beauty and bounty of the outdoors and nature can have a lifelong impact on our perception and understanding of the world while also developing a sense of biophilia, or love for all life, and those interconnected relationships. Enjoy this conversation with Emma, and I'll join you again after. Then, Emma, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to permaculture, and then we can turn the conversation to talk about your project, the Riverside Nature School. So I guess I kind of want to start a little bit in the beginning, if that's okay with you. I've sort of my whole life had this very strong environmental ethic from when I was a young child. And 
I grew up, you know, really having a lot of concern for the environment, knowing I ultimately wanted to go into a field somehow related to environmental issues. And that's kind of the course I was on most of the way through college. I sort of had this plan that I was going to go into environmental policy, and that was going to be the way that I really made a mark on the world and had the impact that I wanted in terms of environmental issues. So this was before I even knew what permaculture was. I had never even heard the term. And I really had no idea that I would end up ultimately doing anything education related. That was not my focus at all. But I started kind of having these internships with think tanks and environmental nonprofits and really quickly became very disillusioned, sort of on two points. One of which was that everything I was hearing about environmental issues and climate change was so doom and gloom, so negative. There was not any focus on sort of a positive solutions-oriented approach that really made people excited and passionate. And then on the other side, also, I was feeling like it was really hard to kind of grind away at this work in the office and not see the tangible impacts. And I pretty quickly felt like, you know, we're not really getting at the root of the problem. We're not going about this the right way. And where does environmentalism start, right? Like, how do we start thinking, you know, about earth care really from the beginning? And at that point is when I started to think a bit about education. said, wait a sec. If we don't have children growing up, we don't have people who are starting from a young age really caring about the environment, it's going to be really tricky to get them to care about it later on in life and to affect the kind of change that I felt was important. And so that's kind of a thought process I was going through near the end of my college experience. I had been studying political science, believing I was going to do environmental policy, sort of had this about face and said, you know what, I'm going to start tackling this from a completely different perspective. And I pulled together kind of out of thin air, really close to the wire, this sort of capstone senior project on best practices and outdoor experiential education for urban youth, which is kind of a mouthful, but it got me off of my college campus, out traveling around through the city of Baltimore, looking and seeing what people were doing in really innovative ways to get kids connected to the outdoors, connected to nature, connected to food production, whether that was you know visiting urban farms that ran youth programming, checking out different after-school programs. And I started to realize, you know, this is something I could get excited about. This is a way that I could have the impact I've been wanting, that I could see tangible results, that we could really sort of start at the root of the problem. And that's what, I guess, initially got me on this path now to where I am kind of combining some of the permaculture piece that didn't come until a bit later with the education. But as this was happening, there was this day, and this story kind of for me was this transformational point. I was in this after-school program with a bunch of sort of mid-elementary school, so maybe third grade boys. And it was this program where they did some outdoor work. They helped out in the urban garden. They did their homework as well. And this was like a super raucous, rowdy bunch of kids, super high energy, not really focused. There was a lot of conflict going on. And all of a sudden, the instructors introduced that that day, they were going to get to meet these new baby chicks that had just hatched. And The transformation I saw when these boys sat down holding these little chicks in their hand, it was like this hush fell over the room. These kids were completely transformed, so focused, so calm, so connected. It was really this incredibly magical moment. And I was hooked. I was like, all right, like this is it for me. This is the path I need to be on. And so from there, I started thinking, you know, how can I make this a part of my life going forward? How can I make this 
you know, the work I do, how do I shift directions? And graduation was looming. I was really close to the end of college. This was a whole new plan for me that I had not thought about before. And sort of just, (laughs) so Hail Mary, I decided I'm going to apply to one teaching job and I'm going to see what happens. And fortunately, I got accepted because (laughs) otherwise I would never have ended up where I am now. And I found myself just a few months later after graduation in D.C. working in a urban public charter school, getting certified to teach at the same time that I was working in a classroom. And I was teaching preschool. So I had a class of 23-year-olds, which was quite a challenge, but it was really an exciting age group. And I loved working with the little ones because I got the opportunity to sort of be their first educational experience in a formal setting and hopefully set them up for a life of, you know, positive feelings towards learning and really being excited about school. And at the same time, you know, I was thinking back, if we're going to get people, children really caring about the environment, what better place to start than when they first enter school, when they're first beginning to learn, when they're first going out on their own and exploring the world. But needless to say, doing this in a really urban area was a little bit challenging. My school had no natural outdoor spaces. The only outdoor play space, actually my first year, the building was under construction. So there was no outdoor play spaces really accessible. And then the second year, there was a sort of interior courtyard with no natural materials. And so I was really doing whatever I could. I helped start a school garden. I would bring in natural materials, but I just felt like I wasn't really getting, you know, where I wanted to be based on what I had seen back in Baltimore with some of those programs I had visited. And at the same time, I sort of found myself questioning again, you know, is this really the right path? What's going on here? I loved the administrators, my coworkers, the families, but there was something structurally about the approach to education, early childhood education in particular, that I was seeing that fairly quickly began to make me feel a bit uncomfortable. And I started really questioning how developmentally appropriate a lot of these structures really were. So again, I was working with three-year-olds. I mean, for anyone that knows a three-year-old, they have a lot of energy. They have, they should have a lot of joy and enthusiasm. And it is really challenging to get a three-year-old, right, to sit still for extended amounts of time, to really do a lot of intense direct instruction. I was in a hyper-academic setting, and these kids, yes, they were making academic gains, but the cost was that we were really overlooking a lot of their social-emotional development, their social-emotional needs. They were asked to be really still and quiet for huge portions of this day. There was no kind of natural movement. They didn't get that exercise they needed. And more and more, I was sort of unhappy with what was going on in that setting. And really, it's a structural issue across, you know, most sort of mainstream education, certainly not at all unique to the school setting I was in. And so I knew I was getting sort of burned out, fed up. And I said, all right, you know, this summer, I am going to take a break and take off my teacher hat for a little bit, a little bit and do something for myself. And so I had recently heard the word permaculture and sort of had no idea really what it was about, but had been intrigued by the little snippets that I'd heard. And so I decided I'm going to sign up for a 12-day PDC and go and stay on site at this incredible eco-village where this is being run and just totally take myself out of the space I've been in and try something new. So I really went into it with not a whole bunch of knowledge about permaculture. You know, as I mentioned, I've been interested in environmental issues for a long time, but had never really explored them through the permaculture lens. And that experience was really, really transformative to me. It opened my eyes in so many ways, gave me a lens to look at the world, to look at 
the challenges I was facing from a completely fresh perspective. And it really, for me, was this experience of, wow, like these are my people. These people are looking at problems the same way I'm looking at problems. They are conscious of the same things that I'm conscious of. And it lit a fire under me to make a change in my life, you know, for myself and in terms of the impact that I was having on the world. And it was honestly pretty hard to go back to the life I was living in D.C., to the environment I was teaching in after having had that experience. And I think probably a lot of your listeners can relate to this idea of the PDC afterglow kind of where you you get done and you're so inspired and you're so excited and you just sort of want to burn down everything you've been doing and build your life anew with all these great things you've discovered. And I was definitely in that place. And fairly quickly, honestly, after the PDC came to the realization that, you know, I cannot keep doing what I'm doing and it's time to get out and do something different. I was wondering with your PDC experience, what eco-village were you at and who did you study with? I did my PDC in Massachusetts, which is where my family is from originally. I did it at Sirius Eco-Village in Shutesbury, and it was run by Kay Cafasso. She's with an organization, Sewing Solutions, and it was a really incredible training. There was a lot of other instructors who came in and shared their knowledge. Um, We got to see everything that had been done on site at Sirius, which is an intentional community built over the course I think it was started in the 70s. So there's been many years of building on layering on top of kind of what they've done and really incredible gardens. All the structures are built using beautiful natural building techniques, uh, timber frame, cob. So it's sort of this magical place to first discover permaculture and sort of these deeper ideas of community and a new way to see the world. With your family being from Massachusetts and studying in Baltimore, teaching in D.C., how did you transition from there to your family's kind of historical home at the Riverside Project? I was getting really kind of fed up with my life in D.C. and my work there, and things just sort of aligned. My partner at the time, husband now, had recently started his own business, and he was location independent. And there had been some tenants living in this old farm property that had been my family since the 1940s who had moved out and the property was now sitting empty. And my mother, who was the primary caretaker for this property, was trying to figure out what to do with it. And this property, it includes 80 acres of land in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. And so for someone coming fresh out of a PDC, the thought of 80 acres is, you know, simultaneously incredibly exciting and completely horrifying and terrifying, something that size. But everything came together at once where we were able to make the move out of D.C., moving into Riverside, this historic farm property that's been in my family since my great-grandparents actually purchased it, formerly a working dairy farm, but had been inactive for really quite a while. And we sort of moved out here, and I had these really grand visions, right? You come off your PDC and you want to do everything. And so I sort of had these big dreams, but not a whole lot of sort of practical idea of what I was actually going to be doing. I really felt at that point, like I was done with education altogether. And sort of, we really hit the ground running. Actually, when we moved out here, we, within a few weeks of moving, we hosted a nine day timber frame barn raising workshop, brought a lot of people in, kind of worked in community to build this structure. Um, That was an experience really inspired by the beautiful natural building I had seen at Sirius while doing my PDC. And for us, that was sort of putting our mark on the land, saying we're here, we really want to use this space for community, we want to use this property as a teaching tool. But I really didn't know from there where I was going. So it was kind of a scary time. We really took a leap of faith coming here. And for the first chunk of 
time, probably six months or so, I was a little bit adrift. We ran some different workshops and trainings on site. You know, I started building up my garden and getting to know the property and really kind of trying to do that whole observe for a year before you do anything too significant piece. But I kind of found myself, even though I had not imagined this would be possible, really missing teaching and really missing kids. And I think that's when I started to realize that, you know, it's all well and good to sort of throw away everything and embrace this uh, permaculture ethic. But really, you know, I did have some talents and skills from my life before that I could continue to draw on and try to find a way to integrate the talents and interests and skills I already had with this new ethic working towards sort of our new goals for the property and with our lives, the way we were living, the mark we were making on the planet. So that's when I started trying to see, okay, how do I fit these pieces together as we move forward? And I think you touch on a really important point there that I don't want to take our entire conversation up with, but that that whenever somebody goes through a PDC and has that experience, to think about how can they take what they've learned there, those ethics and those principles, and rather than try to push themselves in a particular direction of teaching or landscape design, as so many have, to consider how they can apply that to what they're already doing because we're going to need teachers in the classroom who are familiar with permaculture moving forward. We're going to need permaculture lawyers and doctors and janitors and just the entire plethora of human skills and activities within a culture should be applying these ideas to their work. Absolutely. And I think I was fortunate, the PDC I did really looked beyond just sort of the land-based applications of permaculture. So I came away from that thinking about things like social permaculture, financial permaculture, really understanding permaculture sort of as just a lens to view any aspect of the world, right? Not just what we're doing with the land. And I realized fairly quickly after being here that, you know, I'm not going to be the best farmer, the best food producer in the world. It's something I enjoy producing food for myself. But, you know, I really think that my skills lay more in connection with people, in education. And so I started trying to understand how did I apply what I learned, um, these new ways of thinking back to that medium where I had had the previous experience. And I think another big piece of that coming out of the PDC that people probably feel is you're so excited to get that message out there, but we don't necessarily think a lot about, okay, is is the message I learned in my PDC something that there is a market for that people are looking for? Or do I need to repackage it in a way that kind of helps solve a problem, helps meet people where they are? And so what I started doing, I was really missing being around kids, missing teaching. And I started just sort of running these one-off or little mini series of sort of nature-based really hands-on experiential preschool programming. And for me, that was huge. Moving to a new place, I definitely felt isolated and lonely during that first year we were here. And connection for me was one of the huge things that I came away from my PDC, really realizing I needed to put more time and effort into fostering connection with others, as well as, you know, with myself and with the land. And so by getting out there and starting to know people in the community, starting to lead these little programs, I just started talking to people you know, sort of in a market research process, you could say, and saying, you know, what were they looking for? What did they need? What were their experiences raising young children? What were the options they found around here? What was missing? And pretty quickly, I was seeing from parents that there was a lot of frustration with how limited the options in our area were for early childhood programming, and that there was a lot of interest in sort of progressive alternative models. And so for me, that got the gears turning. How can I create something inspired by what I've learned in the PDC, inspired by my sort of core environmental ethic that will also meet this need that these parents have for really innovative programming for their children? And when you 
took all those ideas and started moving forward with this, were there particular models that you looked at, such as like the forest schools out of Norway or anything like that? Or was this really kind of blending your permaculture experiences with your teaching experiences at the charter school? I did look a lot at other models and sort of the German forest kindergarten was something I had heard of. And that's where I started really digging in because in many ways it was sort of the polar opposite approach of what I was used to. It's a really student driven model. So there's not the type of preset curriculum that intense focus on direct instruction that I had been used to. And, um, you know, most strikingly, what makes it most unique is that in a true forest kindergarten, the children are outdoors the entire school day, rain or shine, year round. And so this really appealed to me. One of the things that I'd learned from the PDC and from moving out to Riverside, being out in the country, was that for me, for my mental health, my personal well-being, being outside made a big difference. And there's so much research that, you know, everyone benefits from spending more time outdoors and young children certainly are no exception. And so that model was something I really started digging into. I did a lot of reading. Uh, I watched a lot of videos on YouTube, as one does when they get excited about something new. I went to visit a handful of preschools sort of in the mid-Atlantic area that had similar philosophies to one extent or another. And I realized, you know, this is something that I can do. This is something that really aligns with my values and that I can take some of the really positive lessons that I learned from my classroom teaching experience and put them out in the world in this new way, sort of rooted in that model. So that was definitely what provided the greatest inspiration. And I've been to your space there at the Riverside Project and wandered through the area that you have set up for your students. Are you using that kind of mixture of outdoor with the covered space of your timber frame then to give a more of a mixed experience that models some of the traditional classroom that they will experience when they transition into a school? Or are you really trying to focus more on having them out in the environment as much as possible? I am someone who, you know, really believes in the gray area. Nothing is ever black and white and you really have to do what works for you. And so the model that I have now here would not be characterized as like a true authentic forest kindergarten in the purest sense of the word. I describe it more as a nature preschool. I do include a handful of elements sort of drawn from my previous experience. So we do start the day indoors for about half an hour with an arrival activity and then sort of a traditional morning meeting. Um, I follow the responsive classroom framework for that, which is something I had learned back when I was in teaching in D.C. and found to be really, really helpful. And so there is some sort of literacy learning, some social emotional learning built into that structure. But then from that point on out, the rest of the day is outdoors, unstructured play and exploration, really student driven. And so instead of having these sort of preset today's learning objective is this, we're really going off of what is happening seasonally, what's catching the students' eyes, where their play scenarios are leading them, and that's guiding the learning. And I will certainly you know, to deepen that, I will pull in resources, I will find books for them, find videos for them, Look, up, we'll work on looking up information together, bringing in tools and materials to expand upon that learning. But it's really driven by the students. And this for me was a huge, huge transformation. I really felt like I had to unlearn pretty much everything I had been taught about teaching, about classroom management, about sort of what early childhood should look like. And I had to let go of a lot of control, a lot of certainty. And so it was a challenging experience for me. It's something I'm continuing to work on. And I see myself sort of improving gradually, you know, month by month, year by year, getting better and better at this. But I mean, one of the biggest things for anyone who's spent time in an early childhood classroom or has had experiences as an early childhood teacher, like 
you spend so much time sort of setting things up to look nice and creating these environments that are supposed to be really conducive to learning. And the reality is you learn quickly when you take on this new model that so much of the sort of top-down teacher-driven, whether it's a learning goal or the classroom environment, it does not resonate with children. And you really need to, in this model, what we're doing is giving the kids the freedom to create spaces that are interesting, exciting to them that represent what they're passionate about, what they're excited about. So it's going to look the way that they feel it needs to look. And so there's this huge letting go, right? You can set up a space outdoors, indoors, however it is to look beautiful. But when you let the kids really take ownership of it, you step back and say, I am not here to be this direct instructor, this top-down leader. I am here to support the children's natural learning. That's a huge mental leap to make. I think about when I became a parent, there's a a line that some of my friends said that, you know, your first child is the one who you are really kind of hands-on and very attentive to. And then you learn all the things that you don't need to do as a parent to give them the space to explore the world around them. And you kind of step back then and it's rather than trying to front load an experience, you're there to kind of guide and move them through the day, make sure that they're safe and how all of their needs met and everything along the way. But then how can you help move their interests forward, that if they have a particular toy that they're playing with that day to encourage more of that and to really give them the space to develop into the person who they are rather than trying to directly dictate something. And it was really, really hands-on with my first child (laughs) as I was learning this. And then as she got older and my son was born shortly thereafter, being able to step back some. And now that, that they're older and I've been able to really kind of give them the space that they need, I'm there then much more to guide them. And then they come to me now with, I want to do this. Can you help me with this thing? Or I want to learn more about this. Or will you read this book to me? And we're able to then kind of develop their education in the space between us. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's also, I came from a very hyper academic classroom setting And so I had really sort of bought in for quite a while to this idea that you really need, you know, this concentrated direct instruction of math and literacy, and that's how kids are going to learn. And it was really a fascinating experience for me to start seeing, you know, I understood that play was valuable, but to start seeing what was happening at nature school and with my students and the ways that they were getting significantly richer academic learning in addition to so many other benefits. I mean, I talk about sometimes, so when I when I was teaching DC, and this is common, this is talked about a lot, this idea of the summer slide and that kids, you know, they get to the end of the school year, you send them off for the summer and they sort of forget everything that they had learned. And when you get them back in the fall when their new teacher gets them, it's like they've unlearned half of what they were taught. And so there's this constant focus on, well, we need to keep kids in summer school. We need year-round school programs and we need to send home tons of summer work. Like, how do we keep this in their brains? And what really was sort of a fascinating learning moment for me was someone said to me, you know, our brains in many ways operate in this respect, similar to a computer where they delete the information that does not seem meaningful, that does not seem relevant. And so a lot of what we're looking at is, oh, this awful summer slide. It's really just showing that what we're teaching the kids during the school year is not being taught in a meaningful way. They don't understand the significance. And so they're not retaining it. And that's a pretty harsh indictment, I would say, of our work as teachers, if that's what's happening. And so this idea of how do we make learning meaningful? How do we make it authentic? That's really what's at the heart of the student-driven model. They're deciding what's meaningful, and then you're plugging in the learning to that. And that does not mean that they're not getting the same math or literacy skills. So 
at nature school, we have this area set up outdoors called the mud kitchen. And there's pots and pans and sort of little stump tables and chairs. And the children will set up the most elaborate bakeries, restaurants, cafes there where they're mixing up their mud pies and their mud cakes. And sure, they're having great tactile sensory experience. They're having a ton of fun. They're building a lot of really important social, emotional, and teamwork skills. But they're also learning the same types of literacy and math skills that I would have been teaching in my classroom. So I'll have a bag of chalk there. And these children are sounding out the letters and writing out their menus or their signs with chalk on pieces of wood or pieces of bark. They're collecting silver maple leaves and sycamore leaves to use as money. And they're assigning them different value amounts. And they're adding and subtracting using these leaves to make purchases. So they're still getting those same basic learning objectives that you would have, you know, if you're looking at something like Common Core, they're still hitting those learning objectives, but they're doing it through play and in a way that's authentic and meaningful to them. And that makes learning so much more sticky. With what you are teaching your students at the nature school and with literacy readiness and the math skills that they're developing, do many of your students then transition from your program into a public or private school system that we might think of as kind of a traditional program, or are they moving into a homeschooling situation? I have a mix. I have some families that go on to homeschool, but I have many other families that will be entering into traditional, you know, mainstream, whether it's public or private kindergarten classrooms once they finish here. And that's like the number one question people ask is, will my kid be ready for school? Will they be able to make that transition? Will they be behind because they haven't had maybe a hyper academic preschool experience? And, you know, I can say obviously anecdotally from my own experience, but also from a lot of studies that have been done, especially in Europe and countries like Finland, where they, this is the norm, this model until the age of seven, these kids are probably better prepared than kids who have been in a more traditional preschool setting. The types of sort of creativity, critical thinking, the executive functioning skills, the self-regulation skills that they're learning through play, that translates directly into the classroom in a way that's incredibly impactful. You know, it's great to know your ABCs and your numbers, and my kids know those things, but they also have these sort of higher order thinking skills that are the bedrock for educational success, academic success down the road. At the same time, they're really developing sort of holistically beyond just sort of those core math and literacy skills that so often we narrow down and think just in terms of that, just in terms of test scores. And, you know, there's lots of research out there that says children who spend time outdoors regularly, children who learn in outdoor settings actually do score better on standardized tests. And that's great, but the benefits are so much deeper. And one of the things that was really shocking to me when I sort of started digging into what's going on with early childhood education in this country right now and sort of where are we going wrong, what are the challenges, is that there have been, and any teacher who's been teaching a long time will be able to tell you this, there has been a really noticeable dramatic increase in the number of students who are entering school with sensory processing disorders, with behavior, you know, attention and behavior issues, and also with challenges with gross and fine motor skills. Teachers in kindergarten, early elementary are reporting so much more that there's kids coming into school who can't hold a pencil properly. They don't have the trunk strength to sit on the carpet for long periods of time, or they're falling out of their chairs, they're bumping into things. So there's something going on, right, with all of these basic skills that kids used to come to school with that made them prepared for learning. And if you go to school and you're not physically and mentally prepared to learn, it doesn't matter how good the teacher is, that student is not going to make the growth that they need to make. 
And so more and more research now is being done into the fact that actually a lot of these problems are stemming from this really dramatic decline in the amount of time children spend outdoors and the amount of time especially that they spend in this unstructured outdoor play. There's a really phenomenal book that helped really opened my eyes to this, um, written by a pediatric occupational therapist, Angela Hanscom. It's called Balanced and Barefoot. And she digs into this, you know, far more comprehensively than I can sort of give you in a couple minute soundbite here. But really, there are so many benefits sort of developmentally, therapeutically to this outdoor play. And I've seen that in my own program. I had a student enter into my nature school program who had been in a traditional preschool classroom and had really been struggling, um, having some anxiety stemming from a lot of just sensory overload. This is so common these days with little ones where they have these sort of sensory processing issues where just the sheer amount of stimulation in a traditional classroom, the noise when you're thinking about large class sizes, how colorful and crowded and cluttered all the surfaces and the walls are, it can really be challenging for children. And he entered into my program. This was a kid who didn't want to touch paint, didn't want to touch glue. Within a couple months, this kid literally, I found him sitting in a mud puddle. Like he just loved it. He was digging for worms and he was so calm, so relaxed. I heard over and over from his family what a dramatic difference it had made um, in their experiences with him at home and his anxiety levels. So I've been able to see firsthand in my program what all the research is saying that really the impacts of this program developmentally and in terms of health are phenomenal and that our kids are really suffering from now this place we are in our culture where it's just not the norm anymore. I mean, I grew up being sent outdoors to play and I'm not you know, terribly old, but it's really that doesn't happen anymore in the way it did for most children and they're suffering as a result. I mean, the increases we're seeing in obesity and ADHD and anxiety, a lot of that is stemming from children just not moving enough, not having sort of those experiences in nature. Angela Hanscom sort of describes nature as the ultimate sensory experience, which is so true. You're taking in these sights and sounds and smells and textures all the time. And children are walking on uneven surfaces and things are slippery and they're climbing things and they're falling. And those experiences are what build children's sensory processing abilities. It's what builds those gross and fine motor skills. And if they don't have that, they really are behind when they come into the classroom. And I mean, there's some really shocking things I've been learning about recently too, including there's been a huge increase in myopia, in nearsightedness with children in recent years. And at first they thought, oh, it's because of all the screen time. Kids are looking at screens so much more. And, you know, obviously that's its own can of worms we could go into. But now there are studies showing that it actually is not directly linked to that. It's because the eyes need a certain amount of natural light to develop fully and young children now, so many of them, are not spending enough time outdoors for their eyes to physically get the levels of light they need to develop properly. So there's so much research out there showing that really our kids are suffering as a result of not being outside, not being playing and moving in these ways that historically have always been a part of childhood. And that really does put them at a disadvantage when they come into school. And if they don't have you know, the gross and fine motor skills, if they don't have the self-regulation, the focus, they're going to struggle in the classroom. And I think about when I was studying environmental education, I was reading the works of David Orr and David Sobel. David Orr was kind of looking at how do we reform education from the top down in a holistic way that addresses like integrating our education so that it's more than just, you know, you learn your math facts here, your history facts there, your science facts here. And then David Sobel talks about building forts and the importance of play. 
And then probably the book that had the most impact on me from that experience was Richard Lowe's Last Child in the Woods, where he defines that idea of a nature deficit disorder. And that even though it is not a clinical issue, what he was seeing with children and things like, you know, I want to play inside because that's where the electrical outlets are and how we've had this decline in play. And I see from my own school district the way that they quickly remove recess from a child's day if they're not where they need to be academically because it's, oh, well, here's some quote unquote free time where a child can catch up on their assignment rather than having that time for play. And as a parent having to interject and say, no, this play is important. If one of my children is working on something that they need to complete, I'd rather you send it home with a note with them so that I, as their parent, can work with them on it than to take that time away from them. And how many other activities like that are also being removed then as they get older. Absolutely. And this this trend towards sort of separating kids from nature really has catastrophic impacts when we're looking at sort of environmental ethic, environmental stewardship for future generations. Um, There's this quote that I come back to all the time, we will not fight to save what we do not love. And that's so true, right? We cannot expect people to devote their time and efforts to fighting to save the environment, to protect our planet, if they don't feel that deep personal connection with it. And the way that you develop that love for nature, for the environment, is through spending time in it. And if the child is inside 99% of their time, they simply aren't going to be able to develop that connection to the earth. There's now this sort of phrase of term of um, biophobia has been termed that kids are actually really afraid of nature. They feel really unsafe outdoors. And really in the same way that we talk about, there's sort of that window in early childhood where it's easiest for a child to acquire a second language. The brain kind of is best able to pick that up. It's really the same with learning a love of nature, a connection to nature. You need that time in early childhood where you are outdoors in an unstructured way. That has a larger impact, research shows, on your environmental ethic, your likelihood to be kind of an advocate for the environment later on in life, far more than simply learning about environmental issues in a classroom. You have to have that experience and that connection and feel really strongly a tie to some piece of land, whatever that may be, for you to grow into an adult who will continue to defend the planet, defend nature. And it's interesting that you raised that. It was something that I was going to track back to because you said at the opening of our conversation is that that kind of that biophilia, that love of nature and life in the outdoors, it's something that in a classroom discussion, there were 88 people in my graduate program, and it was one of the questions that was raised to us was, do you remember having some kind of an experience where you fell in love with the natural world? And, you know, most of the people in this program are were park rangers and people who are really actively involved in conservation. And in that dialogue, I think that 86 out of the 88 of us all could pinpoint a prepubescent experience that was the moment where we could remember that it happened and that it, it for most of us it was through an experience with a teacher or a mentor or someone else who shared their interest in the outdoors with us that then continued through our own lives as we continued to explore that on our own and for me i remembered it was a friend of mine's father who would take us out hiking i was eight years old and then when we would come back from hikes it would be one of those okay boys i don't want to see you until dinner time we'll call you when it's ready And my friend and I would go out and we were building forts and roaming over fields in the forests and just spending that time out there. And I can't imagine that I'd be doing the work that I do now if it wasn't for those experiences and times 30 years ago. 
Absolutely. I think that's so true. And that's one of the things, you know, it's easy, as you're saying, to cut out recess or to say, oh, the kids don't have time to go outside and play today and just sort of write it off. But you really need to dig in and think about what is being lost by not allowing the child to climb that tree, by not encouraging them to go outside and get dirty. You know, the impacts really extend into their classroom academically. They extend into their social emotional development and extends into their environmental ethic and the type of citizens they're going to be in the world as adults. And it's really too important to overlook. With everything that you're seeing from the research and your experiences with the nature school, as you say, you know, you you see your own improvement month over month, season over season, year after year. Where do you see going from where you are now? What's the future for you and the nature school? Yeah, absolutely. So I've really seen, you know, it's been sort of this great little laboratory, this nature school program that showed me that this model works and that you know, it works for all kids, not just some kids, and that it's possible to have an approach to early childhood education that looks fundamentally different than kind of the norm in the mainstream, but that gets, you know, much better results. And so with that in mind, I've started thinking about, okay, how do I make this more accessible? How do I scale this so that more children have access to this type of programming? And obviously, I am not in this alone. There's a really wonderful growing movement nationally, internationally, to get kids outside to do more nature-based programming, to start more for schools. But my piece in that is looking at, you know, right now, the reality is I'm running this as a small private program. It's a half-day model. Just the reality of that means it's a small number of children from, you know, more affluent families that are able to swing that type of schedule and that type of financial commitment. And so how do I go about really making this more accessible? And I kind of have two prongs to that right now. I really feel passionately, you know, there are sort of these forest school purists out there that it has to be done this way or don't bother. And really that doesn't resonate with me. I believe I would rather give 10% of this experience to 100 students rather than 100% of this experience to 10 students, right? Like this is too important not to get out there. And so with that in mind, this year I've been launching a pilot program in partnership with the Parks and Recreation department in our county. They run a small preschool program in one of the large parks here in our county. And so one day a week, I've been going in there to run sort of a forest day with those students, giving them a recurring weekly experience going out into nature, getting to do some of this unstructured nature play, getting a taste of this model. And that's something I'm really hoping to scale ultimately into public preschool classes across the county. My vision is that all preschool students should get one day a week of quote-unquote forest school where they're outside returning to a familiar site, getting to build on this learning, really getting to know their local region, understanding what's happening day-to-day, season-to-season in that sort of little micro zone that they are getting to know. So that's been kind of a big focus this year is how do I extend beyond my small private program to make this more accessible to a broader range of students. And the other piece of that is no matter how hard I work, I only have so many hours in the day and can only run so much programming myself. So I've also been working on running more trainings and professional developments around this line of work, helping whether it's teachers in public or private schools or daycare providers, or even just parents who are maybe homeschooling or wanting to provide some more supplemental training for their um, supplemental learning for their kids, helping them sort of begin to piece out, okay, what does this model look like? How do I incorporate more nature, more unstructured outdoor play into my children's lives? How do we make that possible? 
And those are the two avenues I really see pursuing more and more going forward. I love having my own program. It's given me incredible freedom. I have really wonderful families, wonderful students. It's amazing to be able to utilize our family property as the sort of hub for this program. But yes, as I look ahead, it's really about how do we get this model out to as many people in as many places as possible. I really appreciate that desire to expand this and get it to more children. I just recently interviewed Wilson Alvarez, where he's doing engagement with at-risk youth by taking them out into the woods and teaching them about rewilding and permaculture and conservation and the impact that that's having on middle school and high school age children that I can only imagine the difference and the distinction that would occur for kids who have these teaching moments in the outdoors at a young age that they can begin to learn these skills and love the world around them in a very deep connected way and the impact that that can have on them as they get older and on generations to come. And with that and my bit of adoration for what you're doing, because it is so important, do you have any final or closing thoughts for us, Emma? I just come back to that quote, right? We will not fight to save what we do not love. And I think that's something all of us, you know, whether you're an educator or a parent or just know some children in your life, What can you do to help them really love nature? And understanding that, you know, that's not necessarily a formal lesson. That's just about how do we give them the time to build their own personal relationship with the natural world? That can be sending them out in the backyard to climb a tree. This can happen even if you're in an urban area. This can be in a park. It does not have to be in the wilderness. I think a lot of people feel kind of intimidated, right? Like it's a big, scary world out there and it can be hard to get started, but just getting outside a little bit of time each day with a kid and helping them really understand that nature makes them feel better, right? We are part of nature. We're connected to it. And it's so important to build that love early on. And that's something we all can take part in helping to foster, as you said, that that biophilia, that love for nature. Well, thank you for that and everything else that you shared with me today and for agreeing to come have this conversation. Thank you. And that was Emma Huvos. Find out more about her at emmahuvos.com, and Riverside Nature School at riversidenatureschool.com slash natureschool. If Emma's name or the Riverside Project sound familiar, it's because she and I have known each other and worked together for a number of years, including organizing the 2016 and 2017 Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergences. She also hosted a podcast roundtable at the Riverside Project in 2015, which included Nicole Luttrell of Deeply Rooted Design, Jesse Weiner of Liberty Root Farm, Ashley Davis of Meadowsweet Botanicals, and Diane Bluest of Chicory Hill Farm. I've included links to those, as well as my conversation with Patrick Shunny, one of the timber framers who built her outdoor space, and to Emma's projects, in the notes for this episode. I've wanted to have Emma on the show for some time, because I always enjoy the way she blends her passion and professionalism, so that every interaction we have, from first talking about building the timber frame pavilion, to organizing MAPC, or just standing on her porch one summer night talking about permaculture, that I've been left with a better understanding of her personally and of the work she cares so much about. And that gives me more knowledge and a better awareness of myself and my place and role in the world. She's one of those folks who I find inspirational and uplifting every time we're in touch with one another. This conversation in particular left me feeling better about some of the decisions I've made as a parent to expose my children to the natural world, foraging for violets with my daughter, letting my son dig in the dirt, including using some tools that, at first, made me a little nervous. Watching the pair of them building forts, 
which turned into their own little village from down tree limbs, and in which they only asked me for help when they needed it. The three of us together, grabbing our water bottles and cameras to hit the trails and go hiking, allowing me to interweave their childhood with the experiences that, three decades ago, gave me a love for the natural world, just as my large family gave me a love of people from the earliest moments of life. As an educator myself, I leave this interview more comfortable with the evidence for the holistic impacts of environmental education and our direct connection to the relational world of nature, and how that can help to balance the transactional world of tests, capital, and economics. Whether we homeschool, teach in the school system, or a parent just trying to do our best, the information that Emma shared here today is something that I hope that you'll take to heart and apply in the spaces where you live, love, and work. What are your thoughts on this episode? Whether you're a teacher or a parent, or are just interested in outdoor education and want to learn more, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment, or call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also use that phone number, email address, or mailing address to get in touch with me about anything you'd like. I'm here to assist you on your journey. Wherever you are or wherever you go, I will walk beside you for as long as our paths converge. From here, the next episode is with Avery Ellis of Colorado Aquaponics to talk about gray water, aquaponics, and what we can do to change the laws and regulations that make sustainability and permaculture legally prohibitive. Until then, spend each day taking care of Earth, yourself, and spending some time in nature with the children of your community.